Well, good morning. I uh, was listening to uh, some podcast yesterday, and not yet, I don't know, sometime, I heard it, uh, but they were talking about Cornell University, and just to kind of give you a glimpse into kind of where the future is headed with the generations coming up, they said that Cornell University, there's a group of students there that are pushing for lectures to have trigger warnings. So if you don't know what a trigger warning is, it's kind of this like display that would come up and it says, be careful, some of the things that you hear might be offensive and might cause trauma to your life. And this kind of all started back in 2017 is where I really started hearing a lot about it, where campuses started these things called safe spaces, not because there's danger of like a bomb or a threat from disasters or something like that, but because words were becoming very offensive and they wanted to hide from the word. So if somebody would say hello to you wrong, you could retreat to this safe space because you felt unsafe. God help us all. And it, it just kind of like, as I was hearing that, and it's like, this is at colleges, you know, this isn't like preschool where a little kid's running over to somebody and is like, hey, he said that I'm dumb or something like that. This is like people that are trying to be prepared. Hopefully they're already prepared for adulthood, that they are about to be the next generation that is coming in as doctors and educators and uh, people who build things, construction workers and everything like that. And it just kind of as I was hearing it more and more, it made me realize that, man, what the world really wants is rose-colored glasses. Don't talk to me about the dangers that life has. Don't talk to me about the bad things that life has. Don't talk to me about everything that could go wrong. Just tell me life is rainbows and unicorns and let me be happy. And there's a problem with that. That's not how life is. And so we've been going through this series in Ecclesiastes, and Solomon has really just been looking for what is the point of everything? Because life isn't rainbows and unicorns. Life isn't all this cracked up. It's amazing. There are moments that are like that, but life is also hard. And he's hitting this point of just utter despair and depression because he's allowed his wives to pull him away from God. And so he's been going through this under the sun theology where it's like, is there even a God? What's the point of living? I don't know, so I'm gonna seek after it and I'm gonna throw the kitchen sink and everything else at it to see, can I find true happiness in this life? And he's like, you know, for moments it might come and it might go, but overall, he's repeated this term over and over. Under the sun, it's all vanity. It's all meaningless. And so today, as we read through, we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 this morning. And I'll be honest, when I first read it, it was like, what? What are you talking about, Solomon? Because a lot of times when I'll read the Bible, it's the word of God. So I read it as prescriptive. This is how you should live your life. And as I'm reading the things that Solomon is saying, it's like, wait a minute, you want me to do what? Because he says in there for a moment, he says, don't be overly righteous. And it's like, I thought God wanted me to be righteous. And he's like, but don't be overly evil. And it's like, I'm, I'm really confused, Solomon. But again, he's talking about a under the sun theology. So we're going to be in Ecclesiastes 
chapter 7, and uh, we're, we're just going to see what he has to say, but also how God redeems what Solomon says and gives us, not a, under the sun theology, but a with Christ theology. And so if you'll join me, we're going to open up in a word of prayer, and then we'll see what God has to say. So Father God, we thank you again just for this day, God, this opportunity to gather together, and God, I thank you that this is not vanity, what we are doing, but God, we are finding purpose and value and meaning here because God, what I pray we do is go to your word where those things are found, where you speak to us your truths. And so I just pray that this morning your truth be proclaimed. God, that we hear it and God, that we, we don't see the meaninglessness of everything, but we see the purpose that you have given us. So speak to us this morning, and it's in the name of Jesus that we pray this, amen. So there's the struggle that I see in life, that especially here in America, um, we, we have kind of fallen prey to it. And it's where we are going to cling to this world with everything that we have. We are going to try and make this life all there is. Solomon talked about it last week, where if this life is all there is, then eat, drink, and be merry, and live it to the fullest. Enjoy every day as much as you can here and now, because when we die, who knows what happens. But again, that's under the sun theology. That's away from Christ theology, where we have been called to live with a new hope and a new purpose. But yet the, there's this kind of struggle where we make heaven on earth, where it's like, yeah, it's not ideal here, but for the most part, let's hold on to it. Let's gather as much stuff as we can. Let's enjoy life as much as we can, and let's avoid difficulties as much as we can. And those things aren't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, Paul tells Timothy, to the best of your ability, live at peace with everybody. He says, try and live a quiet, faithful life. But when we make those things the ultimate thing, when it's like, I'm, I'm gonna do everything I can to stay comfortable. So therefore, when God calls me out of my comfort, I'm gonna, uh, I'm, I might get dragged kicking and screaming, but I'm gonna resist it as much as I can. Because the thing that matters most is to be comfortable. Again, C.S. Lewis said it one time, if you want a religion that's going to make you feel comfortable, don't choose Christianity because it is going to call you to great things. It was Jim, I think it was Jim Elliott. Uh, it, it was a missionary who was going over to another country one time and he was actually going to cannibals. And the, his friends and everybody were like, hey, we're going to say it's Jim Elliott. They were like, why are you going to go there? Those people will eat you. Stay here where it's safe. And Jim Elliott, again, maybe not him, but the missionary responded by saying, it is better to go and do the Lord's will and be eaten by men than to stay here outside of the Lord's will and be eaten by worms. He was willing to go no matter what it called for him to do because he was going to follow God because he had purpose. He saw the purpose in that. He was not clinging to this world. Instead, he was clinging to the cross where we so often get caught up clinging to this world. And when we cling to this world, 
We struggle with what Solomon has been struggling with this whole time. What's the point of it all? It's all vanity. It's, it's numb and there's a meaninglessness to life when all we do is wake up, go to work or school, and then we come home, do the chores, go to bed and repeat. Rinse and repeat. There's something else you should do. Wash, rinse, repeat. It's like your hair, you know, doing that. Bald people don't understand, but you get it. But you know, like there's this numbness to it if we are not doing it for God. And that is what Solomon is experiencing right now. He's like, I have all the splendor. I have all the glory. I have all the possessions. I have everything. And yet I have nothing. And so as he's about to write to us, he goes through this list of kind of proverbs by telling us, you know what, just don't hit extremes. It's all meaningless, but make sure you don't hit any extremes. So Ecclesiastes chapter seven, starting in verse one, Solomon, he says, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter for by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bride corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask them. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage those, to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. And so again, Solomon's being a realist. Because if you would ask me, like, man, I'm, I'd much rather go on vacation than come home from vacation. Sometimes I'm ready to come home. But it's like I'm ready to go on adventure. It's like to me, when I'm living as a here and now, I want to live life to the fullest. Let's start things. Let's get the party rolling. And instead, Solomon is saying, actually, mourning is better than laughter. Actually, the end of a thing is better than the beginning. And death is a good thing. Because what Solomon is realizing is that this life is gonna have difficulties. If you base it all on the good things of this life, then you are gonna be disappointed. If you are like, hey, whenever I graduate college, I'm gonna get that dream job, meet that dream girl, have that dream house, and not gonna have any problems, then you suddenly realize that's not reality. And then you're like, well, maybe all I need is that million dollars. Because that's the thing, we all have that bucket list of things that if we could just get that, we would be happy. And it's all outside of our reach. Because the moment we get it, the moment we realize, well, that didn't do it. Say you win the lottery, you're gonna have a whole lot more friends than you used to have. And suddenly they're gonna have a lot of problems that you can help them with. They're gonna come from all over the place. I mean. Don't tell me you're not that way, I'm that way. 
I mean, if somebody tells me that they're going to go pro, it's like, don't forget the little guy. I'll take 10%. I won't be greedy. We're that way. Where we think this is what will make me happy, but it is always elusive to us. Jesus, he guarantees us that in this world, you will have tribulation. John 16, 33. He says those very words that in this world, you will have tribulation. So for the believer, we have to understand that. Because for the believer, when we make this world our, our eternity and our heaven, and we cling to it so tightly, those words catch us off guard. But when we realize we are called to something so much greater, that we are not living under the sun, but we are living under the S-O-N, the son of God, that we have a higher calling. And so therefore, whenever the world is like, why would you do that? Why would you sell your mansion and go live among the poor? Why would you go run into the danger zone, risking your life? And it's like, because we know this is not our life. We have been called to something far greater. Because even though Jesus says in John 16, in this world, you will have tribulation. See that next part? But take heart. I have overcome this world. And because Jesus has overcome this world, we too can overcome the world. And so what Solomon is saying in under the sun theology is live in balance, but don't base your life off of it. Enjoy the good days, but don't see the good days as ultimately everything because difficult days are also going to come. It's kind of like getting caught up in the social media lie. A lot of you probably don't have social media, but if you do, what you realize is that everybody takes 20 pictures to get that one perfect picture and then they post it. And then they want everybody to comment on it. And everybody else that is looking at it is like, man, they're at the beach and it's gorgeous. Their life must be together because we get the highlight reel of everybody's lives. We get to see that, man, they've got it all together. It, they, it, if only my life could be like theirs. But what we're missing is the heartache behind it. What we're missing is the pain that they experience through the days, that everyone has their best moments. But Solomon goes on to say in verse 6, he said that, the joy of a fool is as the crackling of thorns under the pot. So is the laughter of fools. It is a vanity. You know what happens whenever you light thorns up? It's like we're having wildfires go on like crazy. They go up and then they're out. That's what it's like when we base our life on the moments here that are good. Now we enjoy those. They're gifts from God but we don't base everything on them because it's like lighting uh, old grass. It's gonna just light up and then it's gonna be gone. There for a moment and then gone. It's gonna vanish. So Solomon again is talking to us in a without Christ mindset. And the sad thing is, is a lot of people live lives in that mindset. A lot of Christians live lives in that mindset. You are probably guilty of living life in that mindset at times. I'm guilty of living life in that mindset. Man, today was a great day and then the next day comes and it's like, where did that come from? What is going on? 
Instead of having that eternal perspective, because you see, the thing about a without Christ mindset is what it truly equals is without hope. Without that eternal hope that we have. When you have no hope, which Solomon's repeated over and over, without Christ, it is all vanity. When you have no hope, life is pointless. And so when life is meaningless and life is vanity, you're left asking the question, what's the point of this? What is the point of everything that I'm doing? Because Solomon goes on to say that even if it's like that, and say say you tried living your life to the best of your ability, that you just wanted to be a morally good person. Solomon goes on to say it's not going to make you succeed. He says in verse 15, In my vain life I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. So he tried to do everything right. He obeyed the law. He never sped. He never ran a stoplight or a stop sign. He was was trying to live his life right, and he perished. And there's a wicked man who prolonged his life in his evil doing. He did everything wrong, and yet he lived many, many years. So Solomon concludes, don't be overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, nor be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. And so that that first part there, verse 15, where he's saying, I saw this guy who tried doing everything right, and he perished early, and I saw this guy who just broke every rule, and it seemed like everything was working out for him. We're left with this question, and it's a theological question. Why would God allow that to happen? Why would God allow this righteous person to perish and this wicked, evil person to succeed? And there's a concept that we base it on. And it's the concept that they were a good old boy. Why did that happen to them? Because they were good. I I did a funeral yesterday and I've, I've done multiple funerals. And I'll tell you the hardest funerals for me to do are the ones where there is no evidence of Christ in their life. But the people guarantee me they were a good person. They were good. They didn't love Jesus. They lived with under the sun theology. They they never gave their life to anything eternal, but they were good. They were morally right. In which Solomon is saying, so? I mean, that's, that's very crude to say it that way. But it's like, okay, so say I did this funeral and I didn't even believe in eternal life afterwards. And I went there and all I said is this person was a good person, but they have ceased to exist. What's the point? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, dust, they no longer exist other than your memory. And even then, that's going to fade. Under the sun theology. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, he says, If Christ is not raised from the dead, we are of all people to be pitied most. We believers. Because we are actually holding to eternal life, where at least these people are just like, okay, you're nothing more than a dog. You live, you die, and then you cease to exist. But they were a good, good person. But under the sun theology, being a good person is vanity. Solomon's already told us that a couple times. 
He has said that to be wise, to be morally good is vanity. To, to be this righteous person, to live life right, it doesn't guarantee that you're going to get to live as long as the wicked person. And so we don't live with under the sun theology. And Solomon, he actually goes on to disprove this very fact in verse 20. He says, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Nobody's righteous. Do not take heart all the things that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. So he's saying nobody's actually righteous. Because you think maybe you're righteous and you hear other people talk bad about somebody. He says, you do that yourself. Paul, he does this in Romans chapter 2 verse 1. Where he tells us, therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. And so you, it's, so Paul is going through and he's making this argument that nobody is righteous. Because you think you're righteous, because you might cast judgment on other people, we do the very thing we accuse other people of doing. Solomon's telling us that too. He says you hear other people cursing somebody and you think, oh man, they're terrible. But yet we ourselves talk bad about other people as well. And so he's saying there is nobody righteous. He goes on to say in verse 27 that this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly. I have found not one. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. He says, I looked for a righteous person and I couldn't find any. I couldn't find it in myself. I couldn't find it in all the people that I looked for. And he concludes with this. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is nobody righteous? It's not God's fault. It's ours. Verse 27, nope, verse 29. He says, see, this alone I found. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. That God made man righteous, but we rebelled against God. We opposed God. Paul says this in Romans 1. He says, they knew God, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Instead, they become, became futile in their thinking. They were foolish in their hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Because of what they did, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Why do bad things happen to good people? Because we rebel against God. We turn our back on God and therefore we live in a fallen and sinful world. And Romans chapter 6 verse 23 tells us the wages of that sin is death. That the result of our turning our back on God is that we deserve death. He said in verse 32, they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things die, yet they not only do them, but they give full approval to those who practice them. You see, here's the thing. I was, I've been reading through Jeremiah in my uh, downtime, and there's been a, this, 
if you don't know Jeremiah, who's writing during the time of Judah as a nation, and he has given them this warning. Because he says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And it made me think a lot of like cultural Christianity today, where people think I can have Jesus in the ways of this world as well. I can be identified by my sin and also claim Christ. I'll live how I want six days of the week, and then Sunday morning I'll go and act like, hey, Jesus and I, we are tight. And Jeremiah actually has a harsh word for the people of Judah and for cultural Christians who think I'm gonna live however I want and God has to give me his grace. He says in verse seven or verse nine of Jeremiah seven, he says, will you steal? Will you murder? Will you commit adultery? Will you swear falsely? Will you make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all of these abominations? Are you going to live like the heathens? Are you gonna live under the sun theology for your life and then come for one hour of the week and be like, whoo, we're freed, but continue to live in slavery to sin? For freedom, Christ has called you to be free. You are no longer to live the way that you used to live because Paul tells us that you were dead to those things, but now you died in Christ and you have been raised to a new life. That you have been called to righteousness. That we live for him. Because that's the thing that Christ did. He came to set captives free to set you free from the sins of your past so that you no longer live in them. Isaiah chapter 42 says, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes of the blind. This is what Christ did to bring out the prison from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And then in verse 43, he says, now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And then verse three, he says, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. He says, I have called you out of darkness. I have called you out of prison so that you now walk in freedom from the things that held you captive. But here's the catch. We are called to walk in that freedom. He says in Galatians 5, 1, for freedom Christ has set you free. And then he goes on to say, so no longer submit yourselves to a yoke of slavery. Think of it this way. In, in a prison situation, go with like prisoners of war. You are captured and you are thrown in a dungeon and there is no hope for escape. I mean, imagine like there's like, it breaks down when you think, well, people have escaped before. This is like the maximum security, no way to get out. You're on a deserted island and you cannot escape. How are you gonna get free? You're not gonna dig your way to China. You're not gonna be able to swim to the nearest country. You are stranded, you are hopeless. 
You need somebody to come and set you free. And so then what happens is finally this ship comes alongside. And they're like, hey, we came to deliver you. Now that person has two choices. They have the route to freedom that they can take in which they're saying, yes, I'm going to walk in freedom. Or they can be like, thanks for saving me. I'm staying where I'm at. I'm going to continue to live in this dungeon. You have been delivered, but you're refusing the deliverance that is offered. Now, who are you going to blame in that situation? Whenever they come back and they're like, hey, did, did you bring them back with you? Are you going to be like, well, you guys, why didn't you save him? They're going to be like, it was freely offered. We went, we did every single thing to save them. They rejected it. That's how it is with so many people. Christ has shed his blood. God says in, I think it's 1 Timothy, that God desires for all men to be saved. That Jesus died so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But the thing is, we have to accept it. So many people reject that. We are called to walk in that freedom. Because here's the thing also. Solomon and Paul have both already told us there's nobody righteous. There's, there's no one righteous, no, not one. And we are stuck with this dilemma. And this is how I'm closing. We need to be right before God. Every single one of us. The only way you will get to heaven is to be in right standing with God. But yet Paul and Solomon both just told us nobody is that. Nobody is righteous before God until the cross. That's where the beauty of the cross comes in. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. I want you to really hear these words. What Paul is telling us Christ did for us. For our sake, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. He took on our sin, even though he did not know sin. So that in him, what do we get to become? We might become the righteousness of God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. How are you gonna be righteous before God? It is impossible without the sacrifice of Christ. It is impossible without receiving him. And then you become righteous. A righteousness not of your own, but a righteousness of Jesus Christ. We get his righteousness. We're talking about that tonight during our evening service. It's the great exchange that God did. He took our sin, he took our debt, he took our pain, he took our sorrow, and he gave us righteousness. Freely offered. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal Christ. This is the one thing that Solomon got right. In verse 18 through 19 of Ecclesiastes 7, he said, It is good that you take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. He says, grab a hold of wisdom. Fear God 
because that is how you will come out of it all. The good times and the bad times, you have a with God theology. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I know what it's like to be in good times. I know what it's like to be in need, to be hungry and to be well-fed. I found the secret to it all. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You have a purpose. God is calling you to something far greater than the meaninglessness of this life. And right here, I'm talking to the non-believer, but also to you Christians, to you who have claimed Christ. Live with the eternal perspective that God is calling you. Because every, every kind of title that I give these sermons is based on a question of searching. Because we're all searching for something. And today's is, what am I living for? What is it you're living for? Are you living for the here and now? Or are you living for the eternal calling that Christ has called you to be a part of? A with God view in which Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The good times, the bad times, I can get through it all because of Christ who strengthens me. Father God, we thank you that it's because of Christ that we can have this viewpoint. That no matter what comes our way, God, we have the rock that we can stand on. And so God, I pray just as Jesus told us in the parable of the wise and foolish builder, I, I pray that as you say, anyone who hears these words of mine and does them, is like the wise man who built his house on the rock. The floods came, the waters rose, but the house stood firm because it was built on you. So God, I just pray, help us build our lives on you. Even if we've already given our lives over to you, it's so easy to fall prey to the things of this world. Help us fix our eyes on you and run the race with perseverance, what is marked before us. God, we need you through this. And so I just pray as you're working on hearts, God, help us to surrender it over to you and to just fix our eyes on you and live for you, not under the sun, but God, for you in everything. It's in the name of Jesus we pray this, amen.